What's going on, everyone? Jim here with the Flying Midwest Podcast. Before we get into this episode, just want to make a quick correction to our last episode. In our last episode, we spoke with Ken Chase, who we incorrectly identified as a retired airline captain. Though he has got vast years of experience, he wanted us to make the correction that he is not, in fact, a retired airline captain, but rather he served as a captain in the United States Air Force. Ken is a man of great integrity, and he did not want to misrepresent himself to our audience. So for that, we apologize to him for the error, and... We thank him for the great content that he was able to help us provide to our audience all the same. And now, Episode 5 of the Flying Midwest Podcast. Crystal Tire Information Whiskey, 21530, wind 060 at 5. 306 Mike Juliet, this is Archer Radar Contact. SRS Weather Information for Minnesota, available on flight service frequency. You've dialed in the Flying Midwest Podcast. Connecting aviators from across America's heartland. Sharing news, information, and events from around the region. Sit back, relax, and join our crew for some hangar talk as we discuss a wide variety of regional aviation topics. And now, from our home at the Anoka County Blaine Airport. Our checklist is complete, and we're ready for departure for another episode of the Flying Midwest Podcast. Hello, everyone. Jim here with the Flying Midwest Podcast. So happy you're able to join us. On this episode, we talk about emergency situations. We speak with private pilot, author, and voiceover artist Lion Templin about his experiences with emergency-type situations. And as always, news, events, and information from around the region with some friendly hangar talk along the way. So strap in and let's take off into this episode of the Flying Midwest Podcast. Hey guys. Greetings. How is everybody? Good. Can't complain, really. It's freezing down here in Texas, mm. whereas yesterday was like 80 degrees. I hear you didn't come prepared for the weather. No, I did not. Lombardi uh, told me. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't leave Minnesota with a winter coat, but I did with a nice, heavy um, Eddie Bauer sweater, which actually came in very handy tonight. In Texas, isn't that basically a coat, though? Um, this is like this is like a heavy down winter coat <laughs> for a Minnesotan in, south, in Texas. Yeah, in the South, people like wear heavy coats when it's like. 60 because yes for the record it's 29 degrees outside right now that is pretty cold for a state that doesn't usually get that cold more southern texas well when i lived in nevada for what three and a half four years like yeah when it was 50 or 60 degrees like when you're so used to it being like a thousand degrees all summer long 50 or 60 is pretty cold so yeah yeah, uh, even me with that minnesotan blood i I threw on a heavier coat when it's 50 or 60 just because I wasn't used to it anymore. Yeah, I lived in Florida, same thing. I mean, I didn't wear a coat, but I definitely, you know, even if it got to like 70 or 65, you know, God forbid, uh, it. I wore, you know, pants and a sweatshirt because it's like the only time you can get away with wearing a sweatshirt down there unless you want to roast like a little piglet. So since our last episode, Trevor has had more fun and exciting aviation-related experiences down at Lackland Air Force Base. Yeah, no kid. 
So if you, I'll preface this. The FA does this. I think it's in Oklahoma that, that they do it. If you get an opportunity to go to an altitude chamber, I highly, highly recommend it. Basically what it's, what it's going through is you have a class so you can sit through an, um, an academic class and it'll give you the aviation physiology symptoms of hypoxia. If you're a tobacco user, what, what kind of altitude does your body really start dealing with the hypoxic symptoms? And then eventually it'll teach you, you'll actually go into an altitude chamber and feel hypoxia, like you get to know your individual symptoms. And then you actually get to do a rapid decompression simulation. So I actually got to do both of them for the Air Force as far as part of my new uh, career field. And I did not know what to expect. And, you know, hypoxia is deadly. I mean, I, I think we I think we can all agree with that, especially yeah. if you if you spent a minute in aviation, when you get up to high altitude, you know, it does become a thing. Payne Stewart was a real thing. Knowing your symptoms, and it's going to be different from everybody else. You could get uh, two or three before your time of useful consciousness is, is up, which is actually a thing that nobody really talks about in the uh, in the civilian world. So I went up to the altitude chamber, and they give us these little worksheets, like um, in series, like two, four, six, eight. What's after that? It's like ten, twelve, all the way so on, whatnot. But you can really start telling after you get up to like uh, I think we're up to twenty five thousand feet of cabin altitude, and you can start seeing where your mental deterioration starts starts going sideways. So for me, you're you know you're up at altitude, you're able to inhale and exhale like you normally would but your body's starving of oxygen. So that was actually kind of eye-opening to me because I always thought that you get the higher you get, it's kind of like a vacuum that you just can't, you can't suck the air into your lungs, but your lungs actually do inflate like they normally do. So, you know, within, I think your time of useful consciousness at that time was three to five minutes at 25,000 feet. After 30 seconds or so, 30 to 60 seconds, you start getting, for me, it was like tingliness. It started definitely getting euphoria started getting mental confusion. And then when you start getting the, uh, the dizziness, that's, that was my, my aha moment. I got to put on oxygen. And it was, I, I lasted maybe 115 seconds. It's like I said, I highly recommend if anybody gets an opportunity to go to an altitude chamber, either through the FAA or through the Air Force, through an aircrew position, do it. It will save your life. I think what you mentioned is really important for why this is so dangerous. Because like you're saying, I mean, if, if you don't know any better, you're breathing normally in your mind, but you're not taking in as much oxygen. A lot of people do report that that euphoria is a common symptom. So if you're up at, you know, 12,000 feet for a really long time and you start kind of being euphoric and goofing around with your buddy in the airplane, you may not notice that you're actually becoming hypoxic. Right. And that's the, that's one of the big things that we take away from from this from this academics is that yeah, 12,000 feet, you know, we, we all know the regulation. If you're going to have a duration more than more than 30 minutes at that altitude, then you have, then the pilot has to be on oxygen. But let's let's add medications. Okay, you have a list of approved medications for the FAA, and maybe you're taking an, an unauthorized medication, or maybe you're a tobacco user, something to that effect. All of a sudden, at 5,000 feet, maybe your, your lungs are operating as if it's at 12 or 13,000 feet. So you go up to 12, 13,000 feet. You're up at 18,000 feet for your lung capacity. So you have a lot of things that are, that are at play, physiologically speaking. So it was really a great thing, great training. I highly recommend it. Invest the money, especially if you're going to do high-altitude flight. Very cool experience. And I think that as you continue through your flight engineer training, uh, we look forward to hearing more of those stories from you and sharing those with our audience. So thanks for that, Trevor. That's a super awesome experience you had, Trevor. And that actually ties in super well to the topic of this week's episode. 
we are actually talking about emergencies this week, and we are going to talk about that in a little bit with our guest for this week. But for now, let's talk about some news. So back in January, we talked about the FA's uh, deal with 5G and the NOTAMs and all that sort of stuff. Well, February 23rd, the FA actually came out with another statement that basically says that the uh, FAA has issued a new airworthiness directive revising the landing requirements for certain aircraft, uh, the 737 to be specific, at airports where 5G interference could occur. The FAA says that the AD does not apply to landings at airports where FAA has determined aircraft radio altimeters are safe and reliable in the 5G C-band environment. It also does not apply to airports where 5G is not deployed. Now, there's a lot of places in the country where 5G is employed. There's also a lot of places in the country where 5G is not. Minneapolis is one of those places where it is deployed. The FAA goes out and saying that the uh, the FAA issued the AD because the the many of the systems that the 737 relies on for the altimeter, the radio altimeter, it includes systems like your auto throttles, your ground proximity warning system, your JIPWIS. Now, the AD affects approximately uh, 2,400 aircraft in the United States and about 8,300 aircraft worldwide, and it's effective immediately. That's kind of a big update that we wanted to bring back to you guys, a little bit update on the C-band fiasco that's going on with 5G. So switching gears, we're going to talk about Textron. Um, if you're a fan of Cessna, you might like to hear that the Turbo Skylane is coming into production again after a nine-year hiatus. Textron is taking orders, and they should start to deliver the new $653,000 aircraft in early 2023. So this new and improved Turbo Skyline will feature upgrades like the Garmin G1000 NXI, a three-bay Macaulay prop, it's heated, which is super nice, and an in-cabin oxygen system. It can go up hot really high, it does all the turbocharged things, and it seems like a really capable aircraft. So it's cool that they're gonna bring that back. And this will be produced in Independence, Kansas. Also having to do with Textron and Cessna, as of the 15th of February, Textron announced that the 8,000th Cessna citation has been delivered to Scott's miracle Grow, which is a huge milestone for the company. The citation has been in production for a multitude of years, and it is one of the most popular business jets in the world. This is a significant milestone for the company, and we look forward to see what they have in store for us in the future. A Nebraska Army National Guard helicopter crew assisted with an aircraft in distress in the Lincoln, Nebraska area on February 10th. The aircraft was returning from a nighttime training flight when it had overheard on air traffic control frequencies that the aircraft was in distress. The pilot of the small aircraft had lost an engine and had to land on a field in the area. Having heard the distress call, CW3 Russell Coleman, who's the pilot of the aircraft, responded to the area with his air crew. He's quoted as saying, we are medevac aircraft with night vision equipment, so we were in a position to help in several ways. By locating the aircraft on the ground, bringing our paramedic and relaying the exact location to first responders. The crew was able to locate the aircraft in a cornfield just east of Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, They noted the aircraft was not far from its last known radar location and had deployed its parachute system. Nebraska State Troopers and ground ambulance crews arrived shortly thereafter, and the crew was able to return back to their Army Aviation Support Facility at the Lincoln Airport. So moving to the northern tier of our region, Moorhead Municipal Airport is going to have a name change. Wednesday, February 23rd, the Moorhead Airport Committee unanimously approved the recommendation for changing its name from Moorhead Municipal Airport to the Moorhead Municipal Airport Florence Treetops Langensmith Field. The recommendation will now go to the City Council for approval. A couple quick highlights for 
for playing with Smith. She grew up in Moorhead and became North Dakota's first licensed pilot. She started an aviation career back in 1929 after watching Charles Lindbergh land at Heckerfield in Fargo. Following the year, she went on to skydive for becoming a first licensed female pilot in North Dakota. She was known for nationwide flying stunts, winning air races against male pilots. An airplane malfunction is believed to have caused a fatal crash that ended her life back at the age of 28. All right, we are going over to Indiana State University now. There is a new scholarship for minority students who are looking to be in their aviation program. This scholarship is actually in honor of former Tuskegee Airman Quentin P. Smith Sr. He is actually an alumnus of the university and isn't yet celebrated at the university itself. A little bit about Smith. He was a first lieutenant in the Army Air Forces during World War II. He was briefly stationed at Freeman Field in Seymour. And he was one of 101 Tuskegee Airmen who were actually arrested for refusing to acknowledge the base's segregated officers clubs for black and white officers. This was known later as the Freeman Field Mutiny. It was actually one of the first instances of black Americans using civil disobedience to secure civil rights. It was actually credited with being a major factor in uh, President Harry Truman's decision to desegregate the military in 1948. A trustee of the university donated $150,000 to start the Quentin P. Smith Senior Endowed Aviation Scholarship, and this aims to increase aviation opportunities for minority students at the university. The school is also renaming the observation deck at its flight academy in honor of Smith. Well, that was the news. Let's hop over to Jim for some events and this day in aviation history. Coming up in just about a week on Saturday, March 5th from 10 to 3 p.m., Iceport 2022, where aviators can fly into Lake Mille Lacs at Max Twin Bay and land on their plowed-in runway on the lake. There's a distinct possibility that Maddie and I may be on our way up there to join in the festivities, so we hope to see some of you there. More information is available on facebook.com forward slash create lift. On Saturday, March 12th, 2022, from 10 a.m. until 2 p.m., there'll be a chilly fly-in at the West Metro Hangar at the Buffalo, Minnesota Airport. The event will be $7 per bowl chili and $2 for beverages. Funds will go towards supporting Aviation Education Center. On Saturday, May 14th, from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., at the Benton, Illinois Airport, they're hosting their second Saturday food truck fly-in and cruise-in. Planes, cars, trucks, and motorcycles are all welcomed at the event. They'll have food trucks set up, a raffle, and winners must be present to win. There will be a no-go or go decision for weather made the day prior to the event, and announcements will be available on Facebook at the Benton Municipal Airport. In our last episode, we highlighted some air shows coming to your area. This episode, we want to talk about the United States Air Force Thunderbirds and United States Navy Blue Angels schedule throughout the Midwest. Beginning with the Thunderbirds, on June 4th and 5th, they will be at the Fort Wayne Open House Air Show in Fort Wayne, Indiana. June 18th and 19th at the Grand Forks Air Force Base Air Show in Grand Forks, North Dakota. July 2nd and 3rd at the Battle Creek Air Show and Balloon Festival in Battle Creek, Michigan. July 16th and 17th at the Duluth Air and Aviation Expo in Duluth, Minnesota. September 3rd and 4th at the KC Air Show in New Century, Kansas. And finally, September 24th and 25th at the Frontiers in Flight Open House and Air Show in McConnell Air Force Base in Wichita, Kansas. On to the Blue Angels. Their show season in the Midwest begins on May 14th and 15th, where they'll perform at Ellsworth Air Force Base at their open house. June 4th and 5th at the Chippewa Valley Air Show in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. July 2nd and 3rd at the National Cherry Festival Air Show in Traverse City, Michigan. 
July 16th and 17th at the Thunder Over Michigan Air Show in Ypsilanti, Michigan. July 23rd and 24th at the Milwaukee Air and Water Show in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And finally, August 20th and 21st, the Chicago Air and Water Show in Chicago, Illinois. And for this episode for our aviation history, February 3rd marks the anniversary of The Day the Music Died, February 3rd, 1959. Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper were killed when the aircraft that they were in crashed in Iowa shortly after takeoff from Mason City. That flight was en route to perform a show in Moorhead, Minnesota. Hey, Trevor, have you ever had any in-flight emergencies? Judging by this week's content, I would say there are times that I've actually had some what I would consider in-flight emergencies. Now, one thing that we really want to get to the crux of is we're not just looking at engine fires. We're not looking at the airplane coming apart around us. There's different levels of emergencies. You know, if you go, if you're a private pilot, VFR pilot going into IMC, that is an emergency. I've been a statistic on that. I, I was a VFR pilot, went into IMC. What about you, Maddie? Honestly, in my, I think I have 400 hours now. In that amount of time, I've gone through several ratings and I still have not had what I would constitute as a true emergency. I have been in a few situations where um, I've had some close calls and I've had some events where, you know, if I wasn't on a training flight and I didn't have a safety net um, or something like that, it would have definitely been an emergency. Like a one time I was on a training flight, I was in IMC and doing an approach. Um, it was an RNAV approach and I lost GPS because it was actually intermittent. It was a genuine failure. Um, and I had to test like, oh, what do I actually do in this situation? Because even going missed, it's like, oh, how am I going to do my hold? I don't know. I don't have GPS. <laughs> so it was, it was definitely... Um, that I remember being a challenge, but I had my CFI with me. Um, so at that time, although I didn't know what to do, I, I had that learning experience, but it definitely goes to show how, depending on your experience level and what kind of situation you're in, everything's always in flux with aviation and you determine as the pilot, what's an emergency. And by the FARs, you are able to do whatever you need to do in order to make sure that flight ends successfully. We've got a good gentleman that's uh, on the podcast this episode, Lion, and I'll hand it off to Jim to go and introduce Lion. So I'm really excited to welcome Lion Templin to our episode. Um, Lion is a close personal friend of mine, um, an accomplished pilot, a Civil Air Patrol mission pilot, and frankly, the person who got me into general aviation and seeking my own pilot certificates and adventures in aviation. Lyon has had a number of experiences in his aviation uh, career that's kind of tested his mettle of what he's made of as a pilot and gained him a lot of experience that he's been able to share with others in telling his story. So that's kind of the purpose of bringing him on this episode. Lyon is also an author who has written um, books on working in the corporate environment, uh, as well as a business consultant. And he does voiceover work, which you have all heard in the intro and outro of these episodes, as Lion is our guy who tells you good day at the end of the episode. So really excited to have him here. So let's welcome Lion Templin. So to start, Lion, you want to give us a brief introduction of yourself? Thanks a lot for having me on, guys. This is fantastic. I'm uh, really excited to be here. Um, yeah, as, as Jim said, uh, I've been flying for a while, both... Um, kind of for myself or uh, civil air patrol as well, just all just single engine stuff. I think the, the big thing about my background in terms of flying is that I, I got a lesson early on from one of my mentors about, you know, you can have a thousand hours, but you can have a thousand hours of the same one hour, a thousand times, or you can have a thousand hours of 
doing different things. And, you know, one of those has, you know, better experience than the other one. And so I kind of took to heart that whole idea of, hey, I should have a whole bunch of different experiences and whatnot to round myself out as a pilot. So I kind of took to throwing myself to, uh, you know, kind of different things uh, early on. And it's been an exciting uh, time in the air for certain. Harrowing at times, but exciting. (laughs) In today's training world, especially, especially the kids who are getting trained up and immediately going to the airlines, a lot of it, it's just, hey, you just got to rack up your hours. So they do a lot of that same one hour a thousand times. And that's really, you know, it's it's kind of discouraging in a way, but at the same time, I'm glad there are people like you out there who have that determination to do that rounding out of your uh, aviation career and making yourself a better pilot that way. This goes back to something that you've said a number of times now, Maddie, on the podcast about we don't rise to the occasion, we sink to our highest level of experience. And I think that Lion has kind of embodied that in his aviation career, not just in, you know, that principle, but just in trying to get those different experiences to round out his training. I think though that, um, you know, I kind of started down this road uh, even during my primary training because I kind of looked at, uh, Hey, what is the hard stuff and what is the stuff most people don't want to do? And I just kind of picked out a couple of things that I thought, Hey, this is something that would be really important to have. So when it got really awful crosswind gusty days, you know, I'm up there with my instructor hammering out the really difficult landings because I know a whole bunch of guys that, you know, if the wind's up, they're not flying. And I thought that that was going to be kind of a liability. So I, I definitely want to be there for the really, really tough landings uh, uh, to practice that stuff because there have been times I've needed it. And having been on air crews with you in civil air patrol, I can say that I'm definitely the, one of the benefactors of that training experience is we, when we did, those missions in Duluth a number of years ago, we had some nasty crosswind landings that, that we did. Um, and the joke amongst not only ourselves, but the, the other aircrew pilots was every time you come back from a mission, you're current for another 90 days because you bounced the landing three times. <laughs> I kind of have my own kind of internal joke about this. I, I call them dangerous amusement park rides. When the, when the airplane is unstable in all three axes, that's a dangerous amusement park ride. And that's where it gets entertaining. At a landing, I took a friend, you know, $100 hamburger thing. Uh, and he's not a pilot, but he's into to flying and whatnot. And uh, we're coming back at night and the wind has kicked up real bad. And so I'm coming into Anoka. I'm fighting the wind the entire way. The aircraft is bouncing around like crazy. And, and we all know these kinds of landings, but um, this guy doesn't know these kinds of landings. So he's over there, like practically praying as I'm like setting it down on the runway, carefully uh, fighting through all the wind and whatnot. And the moment I get it down, he's like, oh, thank God we finally made it. I'm like, let's do that again. <laughs> Sadly, he didn't want to. So, it was uh, a game, huh? <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, we, we I, made that with a full stop. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I, I think it's kind of unique. So my big wind experience was back when I had my Cherokee 180. I love that airplane. That airplane would fly through just about anything. So anyway, it was it was a Memorial Day week, and I can't remember what, what year it was. It wasn't the 103 degree day, but we were I was flying with my wife down to Mankato to have you know a Memorial Day kind of dinner, burger, burger burn, whatever. So the winds were gusting up to 30, 35 knots or something like that. I'm like looking at the the taff, and it's like, oh, the winds are gonna start dying down. Let's go to the airport. It's gonna go within my personal limitations. And you know, so all of a sudden I get on the ATIS, ATIS is calling, you know. 
you know, gusting 20 within my personal limitations. So let's go. Well, the winds kick up right there. And I, I was off before the uh, first or second taxiway off the parallel. And all of a sudden I'm like, crap, I'm going to have to land this thing. We're getting into Mankato. I'm like, we're committed at this point. And just, just go wait it out. Go um, let the, let the sweat, you know, rate it off the hands, let re-gear, retool. And I ended up making a beautiful landing down in Mankato. And then coming back, we, we got nose to nose with a thunderstorm. And, uh, you know, it's like, huh, that's kind of an interesting experience. And I had probably one of the best, my best two landings, including a diversion until the, until, you know, we hit, we hit wind shear and whatnot. So I go, uh, we're, we're going over to Lake though. Cause I was, I was watching the storms and all that stuff. It's like my best landings in my entire career are when it's, when it's adversity. Like, that's pretty awesome. Lan, how about you tell us about how you got into aviation? When I was a kid, I spent a lot of time in Northwestern Ontario and uh, my father took me up there um, and we would take bush planes into the, uh, into the back country. And so, you know, as a kid, you're sitting there in that, uh, that right seat of a, uh, uh, the Havilland beaver flying around uh, over the trees and through, through all the stuff. And that was really impressive to me at the time. But there was a moment in all of that that uh, kind of stood out and said, oh, wow, that's cool. Uh, we're stuck out there. You know, we're waiting for a pickup. It's really low clouds. And we have no idea if we're going to get out. And of course, this is a bush pilot. We're going to get out. Uh, but I didn't know that as a kid, right? So out of nowhere, we suddenly hear the, that big radial engine uh, grinding in. You know, those beavers, they, they fly like, you know, five knots, basically. Grind in straight over the top of us, just at the top of the trees and set it down in the lake. And the clouds are, are just above that. Uh, so he gets it in here and we load up our canoe and load up our gear and whatnot. And I get to sit again in the right seat. And I watch this guy as he takes off into this thick, uh, mush of, of clouds and, and whatnot. And he is following like a little bit of, of like creeks and whatnot through the trees and whatnot, just right above tree level, working his way, trying to figure out, uh, okay, if I head South a bunch, I'll hit a railroad track and then I'll turn on that railroad track and head back towards a road and then take that road back up to the base. And it was a moment of, wow, this is impressive. Like, I think I, I should have been scared, but it was just incredible to watch, you know, this guy understanding his terrain and understanding his aircraft and all that kind of stuff. It just kind of crystallized that, hey, this is really cool. Uh, later on in life, uh, I remember watching on, on television uh, the... Uh, the Gulf War. And I remember a moment where news came by that there was a crew shot down in a Black Hawk. And it was kind of like, oh, wow, flying is really dangerous. You know what? I can do that. And so relatively soon after that, I went to the local recruiters and said, what do I need to do to fly helicopters for the Army? Uh, and I went through a long process uh, all the way up to tests and whatnot. And I eventually unfortunately medical out. But uh, along that path was this whole idea of, you know, flying is kind of a dangerous thing. And, you know, it, it kind of takes a, a bit of nerve to do it. Turned up uh, with me in Civil Air Patrol. And I realized, hey, cool, as I'm flying around just, you know, doing equipment exchanges with my mentor, she was an excellent pilot, that, hey, wait a minute, I can do this myself. Like, I can get this done. So I went from zero to uh, search and rescue rated pilot in two years. 
which is a, a lot of flying. So yeah. yeah, I was I was pretty committed to the whole thing. So let's dive into the reason we've got you here. Um, you've had a number of <laughs> you sir have had a number of incidents we'd like to discuss with you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, in all seriousness, you you and I have talked at length over the years about some of these real good teaching moments. Um, and for someone who, you know, you consider yourself kind of just a normal guy, but at the same time, you've got a lot of experience that people like myself have learned a lot from over the years. So well, we learn a lot from each other, Jim, like absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We had touched on the fact that a lot of your flying is during those nighttime hours. Um, you said, what, about 30 some percent you think are probably night yeah, hours so, over your, the course of your career? Yeah. I mean, the the whole night thing was the other thing that I saw that that pilots were not comfortable doing. And I don't have a problem with the night. So I'm going to learn how to fly at night. Uh, and I'm going to do as much flying as I can. I mean, I, I'm the guy that's arriving back at Anoka at 2 a.m. I did that a lot. Yeah. You know, going out state to go do something. And yeah, I'll get the plane at midnight and I'll be back at 2 a.m. No problem. Somewhere north of 30% of my hours, uh, I think like 36% of my hours are, uh, or nighttime. So with your, with a lot of your night flying, I, I know for me, it's always your engine sounds different. You're you're always fighting your your window of circadian rhythm. You're fighting all these adverse things that are you know physiological, and then you're also dealing with things that are that are kind of psychological. I imagine you have some pretty pretty interesting stories. That you'd be willing to elaborate with us. I mean, I just want to start off with uh, kind of like some stuff about flying at night. To me, it has kind of a different rhythm than the day. Things are quieter. Things are more chill. And things are, are kind of uh, more relaxed uh, and easygoing at night. At least that's the way I see it. You know, I could see someone being you know more nervous or whatnot. But to me, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. There are a few things that I, I kind of pay attention to. One of the, the jokes is, is that I came back to one of my mentors and, and said, Hey, you know, I've been flying at night and, and whatnot, and I've been having a good time. And he goes, oh, yeah. So uh, does your engine sound rough? I'm like, how did you know? He goes, yeah, just push the mixture in just a little bit. Pull it out to, to where you normally feel it is and then push it back in and you'll feel better. And, and that'll take care of it. And it sure did. Uh, that, that scary, like the engine doesn't sound right at night thing, solved. Some other things, you know, I, I enjoy at night. Uh, I fly, you know, uh, with ATC all the time, flight following or whatever. Um, like I won't go anywhere without them. And it's really nice to have like a quiet night just on the horn with the controller. You know, I've actually had a couple conversations with ATC. You know, I'm up at 8,000 feet in the middle of the night. Hey, how are things going? Hey, what's my ground speed? You know, just kind of kick things off and, and find out, you know, hey, how's your night? How's mine? Cool. Uh, and it's kind of nice to not be part of the, the craziness that exists kind of during the day. Everybody just, you know, takes it down a notch at night. So that's kind of cool. Uh, you know, I think there's a, a, a lot of people that they get a little concerned about, you know, what does the ground look like and, and where do we do emergency landings and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's kind of important in my mind that you kind of understand uh, where you're flying and the conditions that you may be forced to land in. You know, like I, I study a lot of, you know, what does the terrain look like along the way and how do I kind of deal with that? But it's not down to, you know, I know for certain there's a field here. or know for certain there's a field there. Like you just kind of have to have that, that understanding that it's going to be harder to do if you have an emergency at night. And it certainly has been. 
all in all, it's, it's quiet. It's relaxing. Uh, there's a beautiful night that I had one night where I, I put the aircraft on autopilot. Uh, and the autopilot was, frankly, it's a little bit drunk. So it sits there kind of swinging the aircraft back and forth and just very <laughs> gently. So I turn on the, the tunes in my headset. I put it on autopilot and I just sit back and, and chill as it's lightly snowing outside. So you just kind of get this, you know, kind of light snow uh, in front of you kind of effect. And it's just a, a beautiful, relaxing time. Navigation at night has is, is been kind of interesting. It's a, it's a different skill set entirely. Um, I and my mentor, she and I went up one night with the sole purpose of we are going to navigate by just the lights and maps alone and turn off the GPS at night. And you know what? You can do it. Mm-hmm. You definitely have to look at the world from a different perspective. Uh, but you can totally do it. Once you switch your mindset of, okay, that cluster of lights is a city, that cluster of lights is a city. Okay. That is, you know, a road. Okay. I can see traffic on that. That's probably the freeway, that kind of thing. That black hole is probably a lake. You kind of get a, a, a better idea of it. And I thought that's a, that's a kind of like a lot of fun to do. It's a new challenge uh, just to kind of see what the world looks like after dark like that. And, you know, you bring up a really good point with that. Um, and it kind of goes to my most, my unpopular <clears throat> aviation opinion, which goes <laughs> to the point where we rely too much on GPS and all that sort of stuff that what happens if, you know, God forbid you lose electricity, you know, alternator goes out. We're, we're trying to conserve batteries. We're in the middle of the black hole. We, what do we have at our disposal that are tools? Yeah, we have a GPS, but we also have paper charts. And that's why I'm a huge proponent of, private pilot know your charts know your paper charts look uh again at <laughs> at night um all sorts of stuff can go weird on me and it, it it takes a little bit of uh i think a little bit of getting used to flying at night and i certainly wasn't used to it the, i think the third flight after i got my ticket a buddy and i flew up to ely to meet some friends and have dinner with them and then fly home no problem we get in the warrior you know about midnight or so everything is good uh start the thing up uh, taxi out there, get on the runway, spin it up and take off. And as I rotate, I realize that the end of the runway, the end of the lit runway is rapidly disappearing underneath the nose of the aircraft. There aren't any other lights out here. And this is the moment I realized that Northern Minnesota is one giant swamp devoid of any ground lights whatsoever. <laughs> and it's a new moon. There's not a, a moon up or anything like that. And I go from, hey, there's some great runway lighting to pitch black in a moment. And I'm really glad that my instructor had gone through all the, the IFR kind of stuff with me. Because in that moment was the realization, okay, you know, watch the instruments, take a look outside. Okay, what are we going to do about this? Okay, uh, I kind of thought to myself, okay, this is probably an IFR departure to this thing. If I climb 500 feet a minute, uh, I'll be fine and stay runway heading until I make 3,000 feet. I won't have any towers uh, above that, which I did. Meanwhile, my passenger is sitting there thinking, hey, this is great. We're, we're flying around and whatnot. <laughs> and I'm just like, you know, clamped on to the yoke, uh, terrified. Again, stuff the fear in the back of the head and, and fly the plan. Uh, but that was pretty much my, my first encounter with my kind of first real night emergency. And I didn't uh, like appear from that, uh, from that black hole for another 45 minutes. Uh, so I turned the aircraft on course using GPS, uh, watching my instruments uh, and flew the damn thing all the way to where lights started to appear uh, kind of in middle Minnesota. And that was a fantastic experience because I wasn't expecting it. 
I didn't see it coming, but boy, I, I kind of know about it now. And you and I have actually talked about that, obviously. Um, and I didn't, I mean, I appreciated the story as, as we've discussed it over the years, but I didn't really appreciate what it was until I experienced it myself. And then as, as you're experiencing, I was up in International Falls on a long cross country coming back at night. You know, I rotate kind of the same thing you say where the lights start to disappear. And after, you know, I got into the space of fly the airplane and figure out what you're doing, we had a GPS where we couldn't turn down the brightness on the thing. So the person flying with me covers up the GPS with their mitten so that I can't necessarily get blinded by this thing, obviously. Once we were stabilized and flying south, I'm like, oh yeah, this is exactly what he was talking about. Like I had a lot more respect for that dynamic than I did initially. We're like, yeah, okay, that, you know, fly the airplane, follow your instruments, trust your instruments, you'll be fine. Like it's just all of a sudden, oh wow, is it dark? Well, in my experience of it is like someone spray painted the windscreen with black spray paint. Absolutely. Like there's nothing there and it is just you. Yep. So we talked about the black hole takeoff. Uh, you've also had an experience with a black hole landing, if I recall correctly. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, again, everything at night is, is a little bit different. And northern Minnesota, once again, has its challenges. So one of the airports up there on the North Shore, what was it, uh, like Silver Bay or something like that, uh, it's kind of nestled in a little bit of a valley, I think. And there's not any lights around it. So, you know, I, I, I need to get fuel. So here we are, we're going to do this. And I know that as I'm approaching the airport that, hey, I'm not going to be able to see anything. Driving lawn on, on downwind, you know, see the airport, no problem, no problem, no problem. But it's that turn to base that really gets you because you make that turn and now everything kind of disappears on you uh, as you kind of come around there. And you're not going to see the, the runway till kind of, you know, as you're approaching final. And so, you know, I'm just kind of, again, controlling my altitude, watching my instruments, you know, watching a little bit over my shoulder to see, you know, where is the runway showing up? And, and sure enough, it shows up. And then my wife is with me and, you know, she's having a great time and not even knowing that this is really a, a, a difficult landing kind of thing. And then the, the black hole part of it uh, kind of gets worse in the fact that because there's no lights around it, the runway environment kind of it can look a little bit weird and it can be hard judging distances because you, you know, you can look in the book and say, okay, you know, this runway is this amount wide, but you know, those visual references really like do a lot for you. So landing going fine, not a big deal. All lights are on, get over the runway. And that's when my wife yells, watch out. And right in front of me, two coyotes run onto the runway. Now, at this moment in time, like I know they're two coyotes, right? I see a flash of them. I know what they are, um, but I am feet, if not inches above the runway. I've got way too much inertia to try and turn the thing around. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen. I'm going to continue with the landing sequence. I don't want to interrupt anything. Um, this is kind of like, I'm going to take a break for a sec. This is kind of like the idea of, you know, <laughs> if you drive up north at night, you're going to hit a deer someday. And what's the most dangerous thing to do uh, when in that situation is swerving. Because if you're at speed and you try to swerve to hit the deer, guess what? You're going to wreck your car and probably still hit the deer. Having done that and plowed a deer right through the front of the, of the vehicle once and didn't swerve, we were fine. And this was way, way deep in the woods. So can't do anything. Uh, continue the landing and sure enough, bang, 
hit something. Uh, but put it down, pull it off of the, the runway and shut it down. And so I get out and I look around. I don't see anything. I don't see anything wrong with the aircraft. Uh, there's no evidence that anything happened here. Well, I definitely hit something. So I hike over to the runway and uh, sure enough, there's a dead coyote hanging on the runway. And uh, yeah, I hit it with one of the tires on the gear. Ooh. And the tire was fine? Yeah, everything was fine. Oh. <laughs> Just kind of, you know, dumb luck that nothing happened to the aircraft. And I, I whacked the coyote exactly in the spot where you could and not have any, you know, damage occur. So sure enough, you know, got fuel and whatnot and had to take off. And I'm like, oh, hold on a minute. I got to go drag the coyote off the runway before I take <laughs> off. So hike down to the runway, chuck the coyote, you know, off to the side and, and take off. So, yeah, uh, that was that was one of uh, a few animals I've hit. In fact, I've, I've hit more I've hit more animals with a plane than I have with my truck, which is kind of a crazy deal. It doesn't get any better from here. <laughs> True. I'm here for comedic relief and occasional um, far aim consultation. Yeah, there you go. Fire starter consultation. Hey, speaking of <laughs> speaking of fire starter, uh, let's talk about the time that you set an aircraft on fire. No, 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 no. Hold on. I, I did not set the aircraft on fire. I mean, I threw the switch that probably started the fire, but okay, like well, it wasn't labeled fire or anything. It was labeled, you know, on. Okay. Fire on. <laughs> At any rate, I'd, I'd love to hear the story about it because it's, it's a not a nighttime story. It, oh, yes. it illustrates only... that things can happen on the ground just because you're not in the area. It doesn't mean that you wouldn't have to possibly deal with a situation. So, yeah. yeah. So to kind of set this whole thing up, uh, this was during a, a big training exercise and uh, we needed to roll some aircraft around uh, for some ground training. So We've got this big crowd of people all around that are all the trainees and whatnot. And, you know, they're, they're, they're supposed to like be ready to work the ramp and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, they're absolutely paying attention when we go to start the aircraft. And when I say absolutely paying attention, I mean, really, no, <laughs> my, uh, my mentor, again, she's hanging out in front of the aircraft, giving me the signaling to start the aircraft and all that kind of stuff. I've got uh, another guy with me over in the right seat. And sure enough, this huge crowd of people is around and whatnot, and, and they, they do get out of the way enough to be able to, to start things up. And, you know, you turn over an engine and, and most people will eventually move. So I'm not certain what happened. And I still to this day don't know, but I get everything, you know, kind of organized. We're belted in. Everything's good. I go turn everything on, uh, turn on the avionics. And uh, I'm not certain why. That was the, the fire to on switch, but the smoke started billowing out of the radio stack. So what happens is I don't discuss anything with my right seater. He sees the smoke. I see the smoke and I start shutting everything off. And not only do I shut everything off, like I'm quickly shutting everything off. I'm pulling off my headset. I'm pulling uh, uh, you know stuff out of the aircraft. Uh, I'm unbelting myself, that kind of thing. We're moving really quickly. And both of us are, are, are moving fast. Now, this other pilot, she's standing out in front and she actually didn't see all the smoke start to fill in the, the cab and she just saw us moving really quickly. We went from a sedate, let's start the aircraft to, whoa, holy crap, those guys are moving fast. So she kind of figures, hey, there's something wrong here. And luckily she figured out, oh yeah, this is probably a fire. So she yells to the crowd, like, go get me a fire extinguisher. And someone goes, oh, do you really need one? Yeah. 
really absolutely do need one. By the time we pop the doors and climb out of the aircraft and more like, you know, kind of fall out, jump out of the aircraft with, uh, uh, with some of our gear and whatnot, a fire extinguisher did show up. It, luckily, it was just an electrical fire and shutting off the master switch and whatnot, like took care of the whole thing and had the thing towed back to the hangar for maintenance. So uh, luckily, it was not a fire in air. I can say that I have been in an aircraft fire before, but thank God it was on the ground. That's the one thing that will scare the bejesus out of me flying is an in-fight flyer. So I have a couple of questions. You've got this aircraft that's now billowing smoke out of your radio stack, right? From you and your um, crew member's perspective, is there any communication that you guys have or do you guys have a rapport built with one another that you kind of know instinctually what the other is going to do to respond to that situation? Oh, yeah. We didn't say anything to each other until we were well clear of the aircraft. We both saw the smoke and we both started moving. And it was a matter of, okay, what's first? Okay, we're going to pull the, the seatbelts first, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then what's next is, uh, I'm going to unplug my headset cause that's easier to just grab the, the cables than it is to try and pull the damn thing off. The next was, okay, I'm going to try to save some of the mission gear or something like that. So like, let's grab the GPS, let's grab something else, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and I should step back that before we even did all that, clearly, you know, smoke started pouring it out. I turned off the master kind of checked all that real quick. So it was kind of like this walk down of, okay, it's important to have the seatbelt off. So let's chuck those off. Okay. All right. We need to have the headsets unplugged. Okay. Those are done. Uh, all right. Let's see if we can grab some gear before the thing bursts into flames. Okay, good. And then once we felt like, okay, that's, that's enough stuff. And that's mind you, that's a matter of seconds. Okay. Right. I'm not, I'm not talking about like a leisurely kind of like, let's unplug a few things. No, no, it was, it was quick. And we didn't say anything to each other. We didn't say anything to the pilot that was uh, marshalling us. All three of us understood the severity of the situation, uh, which I think was really interestingly counterpointed by the the crowd around us, not at all understanding the situation. So seconds later, we bail out of the aircraft and and things are fine. And it's no longer, you know, smoldering a few minutes after that. And, but it was a very deliberate kind of walk through. Let's get this stuff in order of priority. And again, you know, I kind of come back to that whole like idea of if you lose it, you're not going to make it like you've got to take all the fear, the worries, the, the freak out and cram it in the box in the back uh, in order to think your way through these situations. And that's kind of my take on, on all of these things. When I started off uh, as a pilot, I, I subscribed to an aviation safety magazine uh, and you knew it was serious because. It came three hole punched so you can put it into a three ring binder and save it forever. And I have my three ring binder of them somewhere. And I read every article for a couple of years, those first two years of flying, because I wanted to learn from everybody else's experiences. The more that I got from them, the more I could synthesize their stuff. If I ever ran into trouble and my God, am I glad that I did. And one thing I've, I'm kind of picking up on your stories and I think it's goal for our listeners who maybe don't have a whole lot of time. Maybe they're student pilots, maybe they're aspiring pilots that, that have not even had their first flight. It's the reality that you have to meter your kind of emotions and be able to think through simple problems. I mean, they're, they're complex problems, but they're, they're simple in the fact that you're creating options for yourself. Always have options. That, that's, that is my big takeaway. I, I agree entirely. There's just something different about flying an aircraft uh, versus like driving on a freeway. Like driving on a freeway, things happen at such, you know, moment uh, in time kind of thing. But in an aircraft, you've got a moment to think about it before it happens. And that's kind of the moment to, to put your head to it. That's the way I see it anyway. Hey, one more. I want to hear about the Canadian honkers. 
Yeah. The, oh, yeah. You want, the, you want the big one now? We want to get yeah. to it. All right. All right. We've worked our, our way up to this. So here we go. Yeah, we, yeah we've had, a, we've gone through the appetizers. <clears throat> We're ready for that big main course. Okay. So, um, once again at night, Civil Air Patrol is doing uh, kind of an exercise uh, north of the metro. And we've got uh, one mission aircraft uh, going there. And then uh, I've got mine. And I've got a right seater. Uh, so, so I head up to St. Cloud to pick him up. No problem. Moonless night, but uh, you know, it's a nice night. Uh, no clouds or anything like that. Uh, probably, you know, nine o'clock, something like that. And the, the whole point was to go pick up, pick up my crewman and then uh, head over to join the mission. We take off out of St. Cloud and uh, I remember seeing Princeton kind of off in the distance, probably noting like, oh, it's 10 miles to, to Princeton. We're kind of covering, you know, in the aircraft, what we're going to be doing during the mission, you know, the, kind of some of our prep. Uh, I know he's getting ready some of the gear that we're going to need that kind of thing. And, and out of nowhere, that's when the giant bang sound happened. Just this huge, massive bang of, of metal. And then the world went away. Uh, as in, I couldn't see out the windscreen at all. Now, okay, I don't know what happened. And I think confusion was, was more, you know, the moment than anything, as I can't see anything. And I look at the instruments and the instruments look fine. But looking closer at the screen or the windscreen, I can tell like there's some type of black liquid on the windscreen. Oh, I just blew the engine. That's oil. Okay, that's a problem. Okay, so uh, uh, still have tower up. Hey, tower, I need a priority landing at Princeton. I don't know what I was thinking. Like there, there's moments where, you know, your judgment is a little bit off. And I should have said I need to do an emergency landing. I don't know why I chose priority landing. There's a fight in my head about like, oh, maybe this isn't a real emergency. I don't have to go to the FAA. No, you're going to the FAA. So sure enough, they declared emergency for me. Um, and I tell them, yeah, I think I have an engine problem. And the question I remember coming back to me that really snapped my head was how many souls on board? Oh, Yeah two, uh, how much fuel you have left, that kind of thing. And I kind of explain like, okay, I'm going to try to put it down over at Princeton. Meanwhile, I'm still trying to figure out what's going on. The engine isn't misbehaving. Um, and I go back to an article I read in the aviation safety magazine about a guy that blew a rod in his engine up at altitude in cruise. And his comment on the whole thing was that the engine didn't shut down until he touched the controls for the engine. So it kept running as long as he didn't touch, you know, the, the throttle or anything. I'm like, okay, the engine has blown up. It is running right now, and, but I'm not going to touch it. It's either going to be on or off. So I'm going to get to the airport environment uh, and I'm going to manage the, the, the plane from there. Uh, but we're staying in, in cruise the entire time, like just not going to touch it. So, this is definitely one of those moments, and this is the height of, of all of my incidents to date, is, is again, you've got that fear of, of what the hell is going to happen to you and all that kind of stuff, and you really got to cram it in the back there, uh, but it's definitely present. But I can see Princeton ahead of me. It's like eight miles out, and I'm, I'm moving towards it. I'm still trying to figure out what's going on with the aircraft. I can't, I, I don't have any understanding of, of what's gone wrong. I can't see in front of me except for a little patch uh, down kind of near the windscreen and, you know, near the glare shield. Uh, so I'm going to have to look through that to land the aircraft. 
Uh, I don't see anything else. I look around, you know, nothing else is, is wrong. All the instruments stay in, in the green and whatnot, but I am solely focused on what I'm doing. The radio has disappeared uh, to me. Now that I've communicated my intentions to, to the tower, uh, and they know what's going on. Uh, there's traffic on the radio, but I am solely focused on, on flying the plane. Little do I know that at that point in time, uh, Tower is now taking every aircraft in the sector and piling them on top of me because they're expecting me to, to you know, drop it into the ground somewhere. I had no idea that this was happening, but there's a lot of aircraft heading towards me at that moment. So as I approach the, air, the, uh, the airfield, I, I turn the radio to SeaTAF uh, for the field. And this is an, an odd moment because I don't want to have a conversation about I need to do an emergency landing. So I make the conscious decision in my head that I'm going to let a little bit of the fear out. Like I'm going to control it, but I'm going to let some of the fear out of my head so that when I say I am executing an emergency landing at Princeton, please clear the field immediately, that anybody listening will hear that touch of fear and not be like, hey, I'm on the field, I need to do something, blah, blah, blah. Like they will get the hell out of the way. I don't know if this was a good choice or not, but I clamped back down on the fear because again, I, I could not listen to the radio. As far as I'm concerned, the airfield is mine and I'm taking it. I'm comforted as I get close that my favorite maneuver during training was power off 180s. I just love them. They're just a fantastic, fun thing. Uh, and you get to manage a whole bunch of stuff about aircraft energy and that kind of thing. And so I feel that if I can get the aircraft to the field, I can pull out the engine and I'll make it. Okay, cool. I get into the pattern. I've still got the thing like uh, in cruise. And so I start carefully pulling the engine back and I encounter as I turn to, to base and final, just a wicked, wicked crosswind. Uh, and it's close to, you know, max crosswind for a 172. And I fight the thing all the way to the ground. But I, I remember that moment where I pull the engine all the way out to execute the landing and uh, it doesn't die on me. And I put it on the ground. And, and sure enough, I, I roll it out and I come to a stop and I'm like, okay, engine is still running. Like I can barely see the, the runway environment and the taxi lights and whatnot through the little you know, chunk I can see through. So let's at least get it off the runway so I can have my emergency and not screw up the runway. So I drive over to the ramp and, and turn it off and uh, we both get out of the aircraft. And that's when uh, above me is the, the sound of a helicopter, loud, loud four blade helicopter, just you know, right above us. And sure enough, out of nowhere, just a few hundred feet away, the helicopter is slowly hovering down. And then like a movie, a searchlight pops on and plays over the field back and forth until it eventually settles on the both of us as the, as the helicopter is landing. And then moments later, I see a guy in a jumpsuit and a helmet running towards me backlit by the, uh, by the spotlight. And so we start heading towards him. And now that I have all this light, I can turn around and look at the 172. And wow, the, the windscreen isn't black, it's red and feathers. And there's a giant hole through the leading edge of the right wing. And the tip of the right wing is missing. It looks like 
I hit birds of some kind, something big. I, I couldn't even process it at that moment. But sure enough, this guy in the flight suit, the helmet runs up to us. You know, are you guys okay? You know, we were yelling over the, the, pro, the rotor wash of the, the helicopter. And we're like, yeah, yeah, we're okay. I think it was a bird strike. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, you know, he's going to fly over there. And, and why don't you come back to the hangar with us? So we abandoned the aircraft and, and hiked down to this hangar where this, this helicopter was stationed. And it's, it's like a life flight helicopter, right? Uh, so these guys are, are medics. I do recall like, okay, I got to call tower and tell them I made it on the ground okay so they can do whatever they need to do. So I, I dig my phone out of the, the aircraft and I, I find the, the number for the tower uh, and I call those guys up and they're like, okay, that's great. Fantastic. We'll, we'll call everybody off. And so everybody, you know, kind of went on their way. Now I'm pretty jacked up at this point, a lot of adrenaline running, that kind of thing. So I'm sitting over in the, the ready room for the, for the air ambulance crew. And I'm, you know, a little bit of shakes and whatnot, like that's pretty intense stuff. And I'm, I'm letting now all the fear is kind of like, you know, finally I'm on the ground and everything is okay and whatnot. And I can kind of let it like come out of its box. And I just remember them, like, I've got the shakes and whatnot. And they're like, Hey, you want a cup of coffee here? Have a cup of coffee. Like, let's have some caffeine on top of your adrenaline. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> so I call, I, I call my wife, which, you know, those, those kinds of phone calls are really strange because the first thing you say is I'm okay, honey. <laughs> she has no idea what's happened. Right. But I'm just telling her I'm okay. And I briefly explained it, you know, to her what, what happened and whatnot. <clears throat> I call then immediately after that, I call the, uh, the mechanic for, for the aircraft and say, Hey, look, I think this was a bird strike. I don't really know what happened. Uh, someone's going to have to come up and take a look at the aircraft. I, I, I have no idea. And then my next call was to the other aircraft that was in the, the mission. I just told the guy, like, look, you have a, a van there for everybody. I want you to dump your crew uh, in the van and come over and pick us up in Princeton because we still need to fly home. So we, he said, sure, we'll take care of that. And then out of nowhere, my phone rings. Now, mind you, this is like 30, 45 minutes since I declared an emergency, right? It's the FAA. They have my cell phone number. <laughs> they're demanding. Now, this is like on a Friday, right? And they're demanding you shall show up like no option you shall show up at the FISDO office at 8.30 Monday morning. No, like, hey, let's schedule a time for you to come down. No, you will show up. This is the time. This is the place. I'm like, yes, sir. Shall be done. Yeah. And sure enough, um, walked back out on the field after our other pilot showed up and got, uh, got into his aircraft. And, you know, I, I kind of felt like at the time, like, I wonder if I should be scared of flying again because of this. No, let's get the hell out of here. Let's go home. Uh, so it was great getting on, on board another plane immediately after this, this big event kind of thing. Monday morning, I went down to the FISDO's office and I was met with a giant stack of paper, like a, a foot deep, right? And I'm like, okay, I guess I'll get started. And the guy says, okay, let's walk through what happened. I'm like, okay, this is what happened, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I th it looks like we hit three waterfall or, or something, three birds. Uh, and he goes, wait, this was a bird strike? Yeah, yeah. Oh, hold on. I'll be right back. And he grabs the giant stack of paper. He comes back with a different giant stack of paper and says, okay, this is no big deal. You did a precautionary landing. Like we're all good, but you still got to spend the, the rest of the day filling out paperwork, which I did. That was pretty straightforward. They were all cool with me the moment they figured out it wasn't an engine problem, that it was a bird strike. So that's all right. A few days later, I get a call from the, uh, from the mechanic who says that, uh, yeah, I need you to fly the aircraft home. I drove up there. I applied duct tape to it and uh, it's all set to go. 
And, and sure enough, um, so I get the, the guy that flew me uh, and my, my crewman back. I get him to grab a, a cap aircraft, and we fly up there uh, for me to pick up the aircraft and drive it back to maintenance. And sure enough, like he supplied some duct tape and some strategic spots, but mostly the aircraft, including the windscreen, is still covered in blood and guts and all this kind of stuff. And we end up spending a whole bunch of time like scraping all the guts off the windscreen to be able to fly it back to Anoka. And yeah, to this day, that aircraft has like a patch on the leading edge of the of the right wing where the it turns out the three geese went in, into it that the maintenance guy just kind of patched the plane up and it's still flying today. Wow. So, a bad joke. I, like, is that was that a like you catch it, you clean it scenario? <laughs> <laughs> Normally, that'd be okay for me, but you know, <laughs> maybe not this time. That's different. So yeah, that's uh, that's the the big story. I've, I've I've had like a number of incidents, and that's the top one. And yeah, that that was a lot of like thinking through the problem. And I'm really glad that I had read all the stuff before. That saved my life. Uh, reading all the stuff before yeah. and realizing, okay, like. Let's think through this thing. You know, I'll use this guy's, you know, his example uh, as something to guide me, which, you know, even though it wasn't the same situation, I didn't blow up the engine at all. Right. But just simply knowing that, hey, someone's been here before and this is what they did and they lived. Okay. Well, that, that takes the fear down a little bit. Like Mm -hmm. I can operate through that because now I have a plan and I got a procedure and I can execute it. And the whole thing was, a, even though there's like this tremendous amount of fear in the back of your head, like the whole thing was, was something that, you know, you just work the steps of the problem and work your way through it. Like if I can make it to the airport environment, I can power off 180. Okay, cool. If I can, you know, get slow the aircraft down, then I can do a normal landing kind of thing. Like, okay, great. All right. If I can get over the runway, I can pull the power out all the way. Fantastic. We made it kind of thing. Uh, and it was just, you know, solving the problem kind of incrementally. I, I got to hand it to you. That, 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 that's one hell of a story. That's yeah, just, wow. It goes into that space of, you know, always learning in aviation and, you know, your license to learn type of thing and learning from each other and hearing those stories from each other and, and taking that and applying it. Where I mean, not only are we trying to do that through your stories here, but that's kind of the same principle that you were using to get yourself well-versed in all these different aviation scenarios you could wind up in. And now you end up in one and you fall back to that training. Yeah, I find the whole thing kind of funny because I talk about the, this whole thing. I, I tell the story of this and, and I have a certain sense of like, yeah, I made it kind of thing. Like, yeah, this is a, this is a cool story kind of thing. Uh, but to a whole section of the population, this is like, I will never fly with this guy. And this guy is scary. And what the <laughs> hell are you doing? Kind of thing. So I, I think there's two different ways you could look at it, but my take on it is, yeah, this was a success. This turned out, turned out well. Well, I just hope that uh, stories like, like the ones I have, like the one that, that helped me in my time of need, like I'm hoping like maybe this helps someone else in their time of need kind of thing. Like, oh, indeed. We're all, we're all pilots together and, and like we all face, you know, pretty intense challenges at times. That's what flying is. And, you know, if you've got something in the back of your head that, that someone else, you know, kind of walked you through, then hopefully that helps you out when you need it. So to round out our experience with our guests, we'd like to give you the option of how you're going to end this. You have one of two choices. You can either face a series of ridiculous trivia questions from us, or you may share with us your aviation unpopular opinion. It's really the our podcast version of Truth or Dare. And how did you put it last time, Maddie? 
Yeah, you, if you're cool, you pick the dare, and that's the unpopular opinion. Well, I'm trying to figure out, like, uh, I'll take the hard one of, like, you know, an unpopular opinion, but, like, everyone is, is kind of situational. So, mm-hmm. it, like, it'll be popular with some people, it'll be unpopular with others. That's the beauty uh, of it. I guess maybe yeah. just an inflammatory opinion, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, GPSs are dumb, kind of, like, okay, like no. sure, that's not actually nope, yep, true. No, but... I'm good. No, I got one. I got one. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, ooh, I got one. Yeah, absolutely. Look like 90 percent of pilots that i hear on the air are awful on the radio (laughs) learn to use the radio and learn how to talk to atc for once in your life atc will not be cool with you if you're like hey i was just wondering if i could whatever 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 like they're not going to let you drive over the top of minneapolis with that kind of thing (laughs) (laughs) know what you want to do explain it well succinctly and carefully to the controller and guess what you'll get what you want that's absolutely that's beautiful that's almost poetic well i I think that you see that on both sides of the fence if you don't go and experience an an uncontrolled airport you go into that environment and you're tripping over your words there if you i mean that was my experience i guess I didn't experience as much uncontrolled airspace as I probably should have. I, I did all my flight training at a towered airport. So I got really used to talking to ATC. I fly up the road to Cambridge and I sound like a bumbling idiot. Go to other airports that you're not familiar with. Go to uncontrolled airports. If you know you're bad at it, go do it a bunch of times and you won't uh-huh. be bad at it anymore. Well, can I can I add on to my opinion real quick? Please no, you only get one chance at opinions. So. <laughs> okay. you get one opinion on this podcast. Okay, you. No, it's an add-on. Oh, it's not. It, oh, it's an add-on. Oh, okay. All out. If you are a super cub driver, have oh, a radio. Just have a radio and use it, okay? I've been cut off in the pattern by super cub drivers by like a dozen times. Have a radio. They're not expensive. They run on batteries. It's easy. There. And how many pilots have I guess any of us talked to that have had, said the exact same thing? Well, why and I. I sincerely appreciate the time and you coming to chat with us about all of your adventures in aviation. I think it's been eye-opening for all of us. Um, oh, thanks a lot. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, I'm very appreciative. I, I mean, I've heard your stories and I still like hearing them again. Um, but I think all these stories can be beneficial to somebody. And even if we impact only one or two people through you know, the stories that we share, that could be a very big difference for that one or two people that are impacted down the road. One's enough. Absolutely. If you one's save enough. a life, that's that's enough. Yep. They're just enough. one life. Well, I, it's been fantastic meeting you guys, and I've had a good time. Uh, yeah, it's been really fun. So, thanks a lot for having me on. I think this was a really great conversation with with Lion, and just his experiences, I think, are, are great learning experiences for everybody. Um, I've learned a lot. You're right when he when he said, Jim, that you know, really it really tests his metal. Being a good pilot, just beating around a pattern is not what you're going to want for a very proficient pilot. You want somebody that's that's been in the thick of it, that's been able to compartmentalize fear and just get the job done. I think it I think it it speaks volumes to his, his character, his experience. And his ability to, to share that knowledge with, with all of our listeners. So great conversation. You know, we hope that everybody else enjoyed it. What do we got going on for next episode, Jim? 
On our next episode, we will be featuring Piper brand ambassador, L. Taylor. She is a student at Minnesota State University in Mankato, working on her bachelor's of science degree in aviation. And she's also one of the brand new brand ambassadors for Piper Aircraft. We look forward to talking to her, learning about what Piper Aircraft's brand ambassador is all about, as well as some of her activities on social media, such as Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. So if you enjoyed this conversation and our previous content, you can go and visit us on our Facebook page, Instagram, and YouTube, or you can drop us a line at uh, flymidwestpodcast at gmail.com. Oh, and while you're here, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already. Hit the like button. Make sure to comment for the engagement and so we can hear how we're doing and what you'd like to see next. And hit that bell if you're on YouTube. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone. Until next time, see ya. See ya. See ya. Thanks so much for joining us on the Flying Midwest Podcast. Until next time, podcast service terminated, Squawk VFR, frequency change approved. Good day. Do you ever just sit there thinking, man, I really want somebody to laugh at? Well, I have the moment for you. It's time for the bloopers. Back to you guys. Oh boy. Back to Thanks, Trevor. Fine. I just I, right. I'm, I'm I'm trying to help you so you don't sound like an idiot. <laughs> I don't How long have we been doing this now? I don't care that I sound like an idiot. I sound like an idiot on this podcast every <laughs> single episode. We all do, but if you're a fan of Cessna, you might have... I don't know where I was going with that. I'm a fan of Cessna. Right. I'm not. <laughs> Sticking with the theme of uh, Minnesota. Sorry, I had to. No, you didn't. That was, that was bad. <laughs> yeah, your dad's coming out really hard right now. Hey, Dad! Hey, Dad! Dad! I bet when you stand up from that chair when you're done recording this, you go, Ugh, well, I suppose. No, he's got to slap his knees. I think. <laughs> I do that to my dog all the time. She hates it, but I do it anyway. Good thing you do it all the time, then. Well, that was the news. Let's hop over to Jim for some events and this day in aviation history. Thanks, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. At my expense, as always. Well, don't you step? You started it. <laughs> I know. I looked down for one second. You children, start. quit touching each other. Keep your hands yourself. I don't always know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Well, you're the resident expert, how, so we trust how you. How have we not learned this? There's a lot of times I really don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, we jump into emergencies. Mallory, what do you... Th- Mallory, what do you think about that? <laughs> All the things I've been called Mallory is not one of them. I'm going to try this This is again. a real podcast, right? No. I don't know how we do it, <laughs> we, but yes. It, at the end, it turns into one, but I don't... It takes about <laughs> seven hours, I think. So our next episode, we are going to be... Picturing. <laughs> we'll be fixing the ham. So you, you you feel it? You feel me? Are you, are we on the same wavelength? I'm feeling you. <laughs>